use my name. The street. Talk, motherfucker. My name is my name. You're listening to My Name Is My Name with APS, an anomalous humanities podcast. I'm back in Philadelphia after my trip to the UK and to Ireland and to Germany, though since I was in Berlin, I'm not sure I was in real Germany. The trip was really good. I got a lot done on the book I'm working on. Um, My seminar in Dublin, uh, organized by Michael O'Rourke, was very positive. Uh, The conference at Liverpool on mystical theology and continental philosophy of religion was really great. I got to see uh, really good friends who uh, I haven't seen in over a year. But for that three weeks, it felt like I was living in a kind of bubble, free from the world, especially those three days in Berlin where I didn't really have access to the internet, uh, at least not on my mobile phone. Then landing back in England, in Manchester, my phone started to work again and I started to read through the news and I saw the plane shot down in Ukraine. I saw that Israel had stepped up its genocide in Gaza. I saw that Chicago had one of its worst shooting days in recent memory. It's hard to know what to say about any of that since nothing that I can do can really fix any of it. Nothing you can do can really fix any of it. Perhaps some kind of movement can fix it, but such movements are hard to construct, especially in the face of the world and the powers that be. Now clearly I'm speaking very cryptically here, pulling on Gnostic imagery of the world, but also the understanding of the world given to us by Fanon, whose 90th birthday it would have been just two days ago. Trying to understand the structures of what the world is, the way that it organizes our actions and determines our actions has been a focus in my work and the work of those who I respect. So how are we to make sense of a world, for example, that can see a nation state constructed in part as a response to genocide, going on to commit genocide itself? What are the structures that made that initial genocide acceptable to people? And what are the structures that make the current genocide acceptable to people? When I was in Berlin, Dan Barber and I talked about this, and I think he has some interesting ideas about it, which maybe in a future podcast we'll talk about. But in part, it was reading the recent Tumblr blog about how to criticize Israel without being anti-Semitic that made me think about this. Anti-Semitic attacks are becoming more common in Europe, in part because of the actions of Israel against uh, the Palestinians, and also in part because the current administration of Israel has used anti-Semitic logic in its own construction of why it should exist as particularly a Jewish nation rather than a nation that includes many different peoples. It's an incredibly complicated issue, but one that I think Gil Andajar's new book Blood helps us think through as well as his older books uh, Semites and The Jew, the Arab, A History of the Enemy. But as anti-Semitic crimes are increasing, so are Islamophobic hate crimes. And sometimes this is justified, as in the case of what's happening in Israel right now, through recourse to a discussion of the Holocaust. Norman Finkelstein has traced the way that this is used in his work, 
showing how a particularly virulent nationalistic strain of Zionism has erased an older understanding of Zionism uh, that has been traced by Judith Butler and Danielle Boyerin in their work. I think all of these would be necessary to engage with, to think through how one can protest the genocide that's currently being committed by Israelis without lapsing into a kind of anti-Semitism. But I was struck while in Berlin, uh, getting off of the train with Dan near Alexanderplatz, we ran into a pro-Palestine demonstration where they were reading the names of the dead. After we left that demonstration, Dan had me look down at the street where there are sometimes little gold paving stones with the names of the Jewish victims of the Holocaust, people who used to live at that address who were taken from their homes and sent to the camps. In both cases, there's a kind of asymmetry of memory. Who deserves to be remembered? Who can be remembered? I heard these names. I read these names. But what matters is that they lived in a world where they were killable. On this Tumblr post, the author suggests that we avoid talking about bloodlust when talking about Israel, as it plays into an anti-Semitic trope about the blood libel. I'm sympathetic to that. However, precisely what's happening in Israel between the Israelis and the Palestinians is that Arab blood is considered to be blood that can be spilled. Arab children are children that can be murdered in the hundreds for even the attempted murder of one Jewish person. This isn't about the anti-Semitic trope that says that Jews use the children, usually Christian children, in their religious rituals, or even the kind of minor anti-Semitism I hear in Europe around the issue of circumcision. Instead, it relates to the question of the purity of blood always a racist ideology. Perhaps best summarized in the 14 words, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. So the trope of blood is always differential in this way. It always has to have some other, some, some threat to that existence. And here the issue of power asymmetry is important for there is a real threat to the continued existence of the Palestinian people just as there was a real threat to the continued existence of the Jewish people. But that threat always comes from those who are proclaiming that they must secure an existence in the future, that they must secure their own kinship. The truth is I'm not entirely sure how to completely avoid anti-Semitism when protesting Israel, in part because, like I said before, I think that many of the ultra-nationalists in Israel use anti-Semitic tropes in their own construction of their identity. But I also know it's incredibly important to avoid this anti-Semitism. And so we are once again required to think. Today's episode helps us maybe think, as it's a lecture delivered by Professor Agata Bielik Robson, Professor of Jewish Studies at the University of Nottingham, and a researcher at the Polish Academy of Sciences. She's very well known in Poland, but not as yet as well known in the Anglophone world. This lecture is a keynote that she gave at the Liverpool Hope uh, conference I mentioned before on mystical theology and continental philosophy of religion. In it, she traces a kind of counter-modernity through the legacy of Jewish thought within German idealism, a kind of Gnostic Judaism that she thinks is lost. 
at least in the majority of French readings of Hegel and other German idealists. If Gill and Ajar is correct that the construction of the Jew and the Arab as enemies is a kind of Christian construction and a secular construction coming out of Europe, then perhaps by looking to these counter-modernities that arise out of Jewish philosophy, we may begin to think of new ways of responding to that logic, even when it manifests through the actions of the Israeli government. Now, I don't want to suggest that Agatha would agree with everything I'm saying here. She was my internal reader for my PhD dissertation, and we had a lot of disagreement over our understandings of imminence and transcendence, over the importance of Nietzsche versus the threat of Nietzsche, or the meaning of the term natural. But one thing I think we both share is this distrust and even hatred of the world. So I think that even where we disagree or where you find yourself disagreeing with her, there may be aspects that will be useful in thinking through our current situation. A way to remember not merely the death, but the life of those Jewish names and those Palestinian names. The lecture does run long, about an hour and ten minutes, and I have cut out the Q&A simply because the audio didn't pick up all of those in the audience. If you want to have a discussion about this, of course you can use the comments on the Tumblr page, where you'll also find some more information about Agatha's work. So here is Agatha on Isaac Luria's influence on Hegel and the difference that Luria makes in our understanding of history and salvation from the world. Okay, good evening everybody, and a very warm welcome to our, our next keynote um, speaker, uh, who is Agata Bielik-Robson. Um, she bifurcates between Nottingham and Poland. Um, I think she's actually two people, which is why she's managed to produce such an impressive amount of publications, including a couple of years ago, um, The Saving Lie, Harold Bloom and Deconstruction, and an NDC collection and a monograph coming out this year, uh, the collection Judaism in Contemporary Thought, Traces and Influence, and a new book to come out in the autumn um, on Philosophical Moranes, Jewish Cryptotheologies of Late Modernity. Um, so she is um, someone of, of great productivity, but also great passion. I first met Agatha at uh, the, the Viva for Anthony Paul Smith's PhD. An experience he's still reliving after all these years, I think. It's been mentioned many times. <laughs> it's been mentioned many times. Um, uh, he's still traumatized. No, he's still standing. It's very good. Um, but I think you've, you've already brought that, uh, that same precision, that same clarity, and that same passion to our conference so far, for which we've been very grateful. Um, and we are very much looking forward to hearing you this evening. We have uh, roughly an hour for the session. Um, I think Agatha is going to speak for about 50 minutes, and so there will be some time for questions afterwards. Hello, everybody. Uh, the title of my paper is The God of Luria, Hegel Schelling, Jewish Mysticism of History and Its Modern Philosophical Legacy. And it has a motto from Hegel, who will be the main hero of my, uh, uh, of my lecture. It comes from the lectures of the philosophy of religion, and it says, Religion can exist without philosophy. 
that philosophy cannot exist without religion. In my paper, I would like to show how the heretical mystical impulses of early modernity, both Jewish and Christian, give a theosophical stimulus to the modern philosophy of history, most of all Hegel and Schelling. In one of his essays on the fundamental concepts of Judaism, Gershom Scholem postulates a strong connection between the theosophical Kabbalah of Isaac Luria, the 16th century founding father of Jewish modernity, and German idealism, Hegel especially. He immediately adds that he cannot prove a direct influence, a rather improbable hypothesis, but suspects that Hegel was exposed to the so-called Christian Kabbalah of the Rosicrucians, which translates the triadic movement of Lurianic parts of him, divine manifestations, the infinite, Ein Sof, the contracted, Tzimtzum, and the scattered, Shekinah, into the Christian Trinitarian context of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the Christian Kabbalah, from Johannes Reuchlin onward, can be seen as an ingenious synthesis of Kabbalistic and millenarist influences, where the latter are represented mostly by the heretical teachings of Joachim Tafiori, most of all his dynamic, temporalized vision of the Trinity as a holy historical sequence of three ages of the world, age of the Father, age of the Son, and finally Nova Era, die Neuzeit, the new age of the spirit. Scholem wants to claim the birthrights of the typically modern mysticism of history, seen as the Heilsgeschichte, or the history of redemption, for the Jewish Lurianic origin, against Karl Löwit and his famous thesis on German idealism, firmly grounded in the metahistorical trinitarism of Joachim de Fiori. But there is no need to maintain this distinction. It is easy to see how both these early modern formations, fluently crossing the borderlines between Christian and Jewish mysticism, equally influence the development of modern philosophy, strongly marked by the unique historiosophical interest. Thus, while Hegel's division of history into three epochs clearly follows the teachings of the Joachimites, the very identity of the Hegelian spirit, the Geist, strongly resembles the divine presence in the world, Shekinah, which, through the agencies of subjective and objective spirit, that is, human minds and institutions, presses towards the realization of the promise contained in Revelation. And the Hegelian canning of reason, Lista can also be seen as the antinomian agency of the messianic impulse which strives to achieve its goal despite all the obstacles and appearances to the contrary. Yet, my purpose here is not historical. I don't want to track down all the traces of early modern esoteric doctrines in the most paradigmatic philosophy of modernity, which is German idealism. This job has been done very successfully by others. Already in the 19th century by Christian Bauer, one of the young Hegelians who wrote a seminal book on his master and his intellectual milieu called The Christliche Gnosis, The Christian Gnosis. Then Karl Löwit in From Hegel to Nietzsche, and more contemporarily 
Cyril Oregan in Heterodox Hegel and Glenn Alexander Magee in Hegel and the Hermetic Tradition. My goal is different. I want to demonstrate how these esoteric influences truly work within the philosophical systems they parented. I will thus be concerned with the following questions. What is the very nature of this translation which turns theosophical imaginary into philosophical concept? And can we endorse Hegel's project of a full sublation of the religious content in the philosophical form? In what follows, I will engage in precisely such project and try to demonstrate how the most important breakthrough findings of modern philosophy indeed derive from the esoteric imagination. More than that, also the most fundamental conflict of the modern thought stems directly from two partly related and partly separate hermetic heritages. I see this conflict as the ongoing agon of two very different perspectives. One which we may associate with theological absolutism and which finds its best expression in the mysticism driving towards the union with the all-powerful and invulnerable deity, and its opposite, more characteristically modern, which breaks with the traditional unio mystica and aims at the assertion of the actual and historical being. The first line spans from Al-Ghazali and his impact on Christian mystics Eckhart and Burma via Schelling, up to Heidegger, and beyond, perhaps even, to Lacan and Deleuze. The second, less purely mystical, is tinged with messianism and spans from Joachim da Fiore, Isaac Luria, and his innovative messianic Kabbalah via Hegel up to Adorno, Hans Jonas, and Derrida. The first tradition, which takes roots in the Asharid voluntaristic Kalam, extols the infinite divine power, potency, potentiality, which can never be fully actualized and as such always forms a powerful opposition towards everything that exists on the creaturely level. All actual enjoys here only a relative existence, which means that, as Schelling puts it, it is ultimately depotentialized in face of the absolute potency of God. The second, younger tradition, on the other hand, commences in the secret experience of the death of God, which, for the first time, sees the act of creation as a major and potentially dangerous crisis in the Godhead itself. A cosmic catastrophe which weakens God by depleting his power and in extreme cases turns him completely inactive. Although anticipated already in the doctrine of the ancient Gnostics, this other mysticism, which aims not so much at the union with God as at the restoration of God, gathers momentum only with the Lurianic invention of Tsim Tzu which inaugurated modern Jewish messianism with its unique valorization of history. But I will not sketch the whole history of the confrontation of these two esoteric lines and their vicissitudes in modern philosophy. 
I will only limit myself to the reconstruction of this conflict on the example of the lifelong feud between two main champions of German idealism, Schelling and Hegel, at the very peak of the conflict, that is, in the first decade of the 19th century, when Hegel is writing his phenomenology and Schelling composes his famous essay on human freedom. Later, old Hegel would denounce phenomenology of spirit as lacking a proper philosophical beginnings and thus worthy merely to be put under the heading of the subjective spirit. But this is indeed an adequate self-diagnosis, if not exactly a fortuitous alinity. Hegel's self-criticism is unjustified. The real greatness of phenomenology consists precisely in its emphasis on the finite being, which later on, at the stage of Hegelian logic, will once again be swallowed by the overwhelming powers of the absolute idea, which may indeed be seen as Schelling's revenge from beyond the grave. Okay, the first part, the birth pangs of the world. To repeat, my argument is not historical. What I try to prove here, namely the crucial influence of Isaac Luria on Hegel, cannot be demonstrated in terms of a direct impact. None of those who ever commented on Hegel's indebtedness to esoteric milieu of thought, Scholem, Oregon, or Magee, would go any further than to suggest that Hegel knew Luria only secondhand, mostly from the Christian Kabbalah of Friedrich Christoph Oettinger, the prominent representative of Swabian Lutheran mysticism, and from whatever has been left of Luria in the writings of Jakob Thema. In fact, Cyril Oregon does not even mention Luria once, focusing only on Hegel's Christian esoteric sources. Yet, this diffused influence can nonetheless be shown as a logical sequence and consequence. The transfiguration of one very specific Lurianic motif of Tsum into the death of God philosophy, which leads to Hegel's unique investment in the world of actual history, something we still find missing in Hegel's friend and rival, Schelling, who was equally exposed to the esoteric teachings of Reuchling, Bemer, Ettinger, and Consortus. My argument, therefore, belongs not so much to the history of ideas as rather to the logic of ideas, in which it resembles a similar maneuver executed by Deleuze in his reading of Spinoza, where he sees the Spinozist system as a logical development of Don Scotus' thesis on the university of being. Even though Deleuze cannot prove a direct influence of the Scottian writings on Spinoza, he is right in insisting that the very logic of university informs the latter's expressive philosophy and leads to the analogical modification of the Neoplatonic doctrine of emanation, which we can also encounter in Hegel. The analogy, therefore, is stronger than it might have appeared prima facie. The same early modern logic which pushes Spinoza towards the affirmation of material reality can also be detected in Luria and then in Hegel. And this is indeed the Scottian logic of univocatio entis. 
The only difference here is historicity, which dramatizes the initial impulse of Duns Scotus doctrine. While in Spinoza, God and world exist equally strongly as two parallel aspects of the same substance. In Luria and Hegel, this ontological equality takes the form of the historical sequence. In order for the world to exist in the univocal way, God has to make room for a new existence, that is, to fade away. University properly and strictly understood requires that God and the world must occupy exactly the same ontological plane. If the existence of the creation is not to come out paler than the being of its creator, they must belong to the same metaphysical register. Thus, unknowingly, Luria makes a lasting contribution to the logic of university inaugurated by Don Scotus, and then it serves Hegel as a springboard for his critique of Spinoza's thought as not fully consequential. According to Hegel, Spinoza's open affirmation of the individual modifications of the substance must indeed remain merely a declaration. Only when God truly disappears for the sake of the world, the university thesis becomes complete. So, what is this Tsim Tsum, according to Isaac Luria, the 16th century Safed sage who revolutionized the Kabbalistic thought? According to Sholem, it is first and foremost an attempt to give a true meaning to the notion of creatio ex nihilo, as radical separation of God and the world. Luria wishes to solve the notorious problem of the creaturely status of things, simultaneously different from God and yet linked to him by the very fact of being created. Tsim meaning literally God's, God's self-reduction, is to account for this paradox and present nothingness, ayin, not as one of divine attributes, as in classical Neoplatonism, but as his first act of creation. In the beginning, therefore, God creates nothing. Only when God withdraws within himself, evacuating his essence to the thin line of circumference, defining the empty realm inside, there also appears the place of possible separation, a room for something else. In the beginning, God makes room, that is, he creates place, makom, which according to Baraita is one of the privileged names divine. Sholem comments, creation out of nothing, from the void, could be nothing other than creation of the void, that is, of the possibility of thinking of anything that was not God. Without such an act of self-limitation, after all, there would be only God and obviously nothing else. A being that is not God could only become possible and originate by virtue of such a contraction, such a paradoxical retreat of God into himself. By positing a negative factor in himself, God liberates creation. Into this place, empty space, God sends the ray of his emanation, thus creating the world. 
But unlike in classical Neoplatonism, where everything is but a trace of the one, this is an emanatio interrupta. God has to be very careful about the display of his creative power, for if he filled this place with himself again, it would immediately cease to be other. Thus, every time he imparts his essence to the creation, he immediately has to withdraw and reduce his presence. Every act of emanation testifying to God's presence is thus coupled with the opposite movement of self-reduction, heading towards his hiddenness, self-erasure and absence. But the Lurianic narration also involves a more dramatic image of the divine trace that links this interplay of emanation and withdrawal, presence and absence, participation and refusal, to the metaphor of breaking of the vessels, Shvirat Hakelim, according to which the vessels prepared by God to contain his creational word were too weak, too tinged with nothingness to withhold his power. Yet, there is also a possibility to see the breaking of the vessels in more optimistic and promising light, not as a dark Gnostic motif of Galuth, the universal dispersion diaspora of all things, which can never find the right place in the world, but as an act of what Nietzsche, already a modern philosopher, calls the Schöpferische Zerstörung, creative destruction, in which the pre-established order of the universe disappears, thus paving way to a more liberated idea of life. The theosophical image of broken vessels parallels thus the philosophical notion of the nominalistic demise of the universals, that is, the destruction of the perennial divine order, giving shape but also keeping in check the lower material spheres of emanation. As long as this leash or the umbilical cord exists, maintaining the intimate link between God's creationist design and the actual created world, the latter can never become fully separate, fully emancipated. In order for the free world to be born, the vessels must break. And this is why, in this less pessimistic reading, the Shvirat resembles more the violent birth pangs than the sudden death of God's providential plan. For the world to be properly born, God's perfect order must die, which also means that God must die, as God the Father, God the Provider, God the Sovereign, who watches over his creation and keeps it according to his plan. When vessels break, time is truly out of joint. But that too indicates that time, for the first time, comes to the fore as the proper element of the created world. The world, released from all divine leashes, truly unleashed, stands now on its own. But it doesn't mean that it is all perfect. To the contrary, all things are still to find the right place in the ultimate rearrangement of being. They are all now set on the move to form new configurations, and they cannot stop until one of these constellations will finally manage to reproduce the lost face of God. This is Luria's theosophical symbol for encrypting the simultaneously troubling and exciting novelty 
of the modern age. The new historical dynamics in which all that was solid melted into air and all that seemed so eternally sacred became quotidian and profane. We will find similar, something similar also in Beme, who calls this ambivalent mobility of all things turba, chaos, trouble, but at the same time pains of delivery. When overwhelmed by turba, the world is in the labour of nativity. It is literally being born. We could just complement Sholem's claim that Luria's vision of the cosmic diaspora of all things mirrors the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, the motherland of Kabbalistic speculation, by adding to it a more philosophical spin. Galut would thus also be a reflection on the nascent period of early modernity, this exciting, troubling new age marked by both high hopes and deep unrest. The second part, mystical nominalism. But let us go back a little to the modernity's golden period in which the historical promise of the new age finds its most powerful embodiment in the philosophy of the post-Kantian German idealism and particularly strongly in the intense systematic rethinking of the nature of the absolute which accompanies the lifelong debate between Hegel and Schelling. To repeat, my thesis here is that the crucial difference between Schelling and Hegel in reference to the absolute derives from the stronger Lurianic influence exerted on the latter. Schelling, despite all his boasting about being the first thinker of German idealism, is still very much in thrall of traditional Neoplatonism, which cannot see creation as the act of depletion of the absolute. The absolute is full, perfectly pleromatic, and superabundant by definition. So creation can be nothing else than, at worst, just an accidental overspilling of the divine substance, or at best, a gift, albeit a pointless one, as all gifts are, in fact. Thus, although Schelling focuses much on the philosophy of nature and what at first glance appears as necessary, creaturely detour in the history of the absolute gaining self-knowledge, this edifice lands now and again in ruins, thus pushing Schelling to avail himself of ever new strategies, which eventually all turn out to be merely partial and unsatisfactory. A good example of such recurrent failure here is Schelling's essay on philosophy and religion, written in 1804, which brackets the whole earlier transcendental narrative and regresses to the Neoplatonic cliché of the creation as a metaphysical fall, or rather upfall, the willful falling away of things from the divine absolute. This essential inequality, which denigrates the creator's being in comparison to the fullness of the absolute, and is prone to see its attempts at emancipation as the macrocosmic version of the original sin, will always accompany Schelling's writings, from his first philosophy of identity to his last philosophy of revelation.
challenge failure <clears throat> may indeed be an indirect proof that it is only with the Lurianic notion of creation as depletion that history can become a true interest of new idealist metaphysics. And as such, it is realized in full seriousness only by Hegel. Only if you are ready to forfeit the Neoplatonic thinking of the Absolute in terms of superabundant fountain of being, that is to think truly in terms of the Lurianic death of God, the history of creation can become a real arena of the divine restitution. Something Schelling or Beme or Franz Bader, for that matter, could never think to the logical end. Obviously, Hegel would retort to this that he never needed the Lurianic hypothesis. All he needed was to think philosophically the Christian idea of incarnation to its very limit and turn his doctrine into, as he himself admitted, one big speculative good Friday. Karl Levitt would probably second him in this opinion by claiming that such philosophical paraphrase of incarnatio had already been anticipated by the heretical eternal gospel of Joachim da Fiori, who paved the way to the historicized interpretation of the Trinity as the passage of subsequent divine demises. Although Joachim were not so bold himself, he was only a step away from envisaging uh, an ultimate theodrama in which God undergoes a self-transformation by engaging in a series of deaths and rebirths. By thine has God the Father, the sovereign master, he becomes reborn in the incarnate song, and then by dying on the cross and thus rejecting the particularity of this unique and monstrous embodiment, he assumes the final form of the spirit the ubiquitous, though scattered, divine presence in the immanent world. But, as I've already said, there is no need whatsoever to make such exclusivist claims in order to secure the purely Christian esoteric background of the Hegelian thought. Because Joachim himself was accused by the Church of Judaizing Christianity by introducing the very notion of metaphysical history and so-called metatemporal transcendence. And because Lurianic Kabbalah is not itself free from Christian influences, we can safely assume a common hermetic Judeo-Christian matrix which had worked together towards the most pivotal breakthrough of the Nova Era, the new interest in history as the privileged arena of divine self-manifestation. There is, however, a strict parallel between the Christian incarnation and the Lurianic Tzimtzum, which was spotted by one of the contemporary Jewish theologians, Joseph Soloveitchik. Soloveitchik, or rather Soloveitchik, but in Russian it simply means nightingale. Soloveitchik points to the common kenotic motif of divine self-limitation, bordering on self-annihilation. If Christ becoming a man means that he dies as the God eternal and infinite, so he can stop diminishing the actual being by comparison with his eternal superesse and thus boost the created world with ontological confirmation, 
then this is also precisely the philosophical significance of Tsim Tsum, in which the infinite denies himself the claim to be the only highest being and grants ontic autonomy to something emphatically different than himself, that is, the world. The common denominator of both ideas is indeed the death of God, conceived in terms of the divine ontological monopoly which must be superseded for the sake of something else to emerge, also as being in the strictly univocal sense of the word. Luria and Hegel, therefore, both participate in what Ernst Bloch, the 20th century Lurianic Hegelian, called very aptly a mystical nominalism. Not the dreary and sad nominalistic doctrine of Ockham's razor, which produced the most oppressive disenchanting effect of modern enlightenment, but the rich and ecstatic reverse of modern nominalism, a celebration of the ontological multitude emancipating itself from the rule of the neoplatonic hierarchy of universals. Mystical nominalism would thus reflect the new metaphysical glory of what Scholem calls the liberated creation, liberated precisely by the generosity of the divine Tsim It is in fact in Luria where we can see the beginning of this new simultaneously hermetic and philosophical vision, despite his overtly Gnostic pessimism. Not just departure from the hierarchical cosmos of the Neoplatonic Pleroma, an inevitable decline of all emanated being, but also from the idea of the original sin, which mirrors the macrocosmic fall on the microcosmic label. The most famous metaphor of the Lurianic system next to Tsim the breaking of the vessel, Shvirat Hakelim, which, as we have already seen, provides an esoteric, esoteric equivalent to the nominalistic destruction of the universals, is nobody's fault. It is rather the first and paradigmatic occurrence of what Max Weber will later call the unintended consequence, happening beyond God's will and control, and in this manner inaugurating a truly new life of the world in the sphere of alienation. Obviously, positively understood. Thus, if we disregard the Gnostic rhetoric of lament, which pervades Luria's thought, and focus only on its more or less unintended, purely philosophical consequence, we will immediately see that the breaking of the vessels ruthlessly follows the logic which underlies the motive of God's self-contraction. For, if God's intention was to invent the difference in the reader's terms, then the only way to fulfill this intention was to break it to create something truly different that would venture beyond anything intended by betraying it. If God wanted to give birth to the new category of being, he had to let it go, cut the umbilical cord of intention and make it emerge through the mechanism of betrayal and alienation. The positive discovery of alienation in Luria's idiom Galuth, the expulsion of the world from the divine Pleroma, 
not as a merely negative inertia responsible for the metaphysical fall, but as a positive force of creation, inventing a true difference that would make the difference, will also play a crucial part in Hegel's thought, but never in Schelling. In both thinkers, Luria and Hegel, Tikkun, the redemptive restoration of unity between God and world, is never a simple return to the original state, state of the divine unimpaired plenitude. It is, to use the prophetic formulation from the Talmud, a second deed which is greater than the first one. It is never a simple annulment of the state of alienation, but its productive subsumption sublation in the stage of the final synthesis, which marks the ultimate evolution of the created being, something the Kabbalists call the ritual of the new creation. But it can never be achieved without harm or nashade. The ideal of the unbeschädigtes Leben, life without harm and impairment, which still accompanies Hegel's early theological thought as the vision of perfect union of Christian community with the God of love, becomes decisively rejected at the time of writing phenomenology. Some beschädigung, some harm, must occur if the world is to arise and stand on its own feet, if it is not to dissolve immediately in the blinding light of the divine perfection. If this oriental metaphysics, this is a quote from Hegel, in which nothing created can assert itself in ontological autonomy, Hegel attributed it to Spinoza, but in fact he should have done it in reference to Schelling. Okay, this oriental metaphysics is to be overcome, if it is, if it is oriental metaphysics is to be overcome, there must also a room be made for a cosmic catastrophe. The first accident that will indeed produce a whole series of new accidents, thus forming the contingent world of actuality, where alienation becomes the second and true name of freedom. A harm done to God and his design, a violent shattering of his intended order. This is why Sholem compares Shvirat Hakelim to the birth banks and a grand cosmic catharsis. If the other is to be born, it must be born out of an accident. The other must be accidental, contingent, unnecessary. What Mayasu calls the necessity of contingency was actually proven already by Luria, and only then confirmed by Hegel. As Fackenheim, another Jewish Hegelian, asserts in his great book on uh, Hegel and religious thought, according to Hegel's theory, contingency itself is necessary without qualifications. On account of the necessity of the notion, there must be contingency in the world. This harm, shade, therefore, is not a sin. It's not to be regretted or deplored. Not an arbitrary thought which could or could not have happened, but a necessary error implied in the very logic of creation, which Christian tradition approaches best by the concept of Felix Kulpa. Lurianic Hegelian temperament can thus be most aptly summed up 
by the conclusion from John Milton's Paradise Lost, which equally likely disposes of the notion of the original sin, without at the same time becoming too optimistically Pelagian. And now I quote what you all probably very well know. Soon natural tears they dropped, obviously Adam and Eve, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them, where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide. They, hand in hand, with wandering steps and slow, through Eden took their solitary way. Okay, the third part, Schelling's Tim The best way to demonstrate the crucial difference between Hegel and Schelling, which here it says as the synecdoche of the difference between the first truly modern philosopher of the world and the last pre-modern philosopher of the absolute, is to compare their interpretations of Tim Tsung. Schelling's misreading of this concept is very telling. Totally contrary to Luria's intentions, he sees it immediately as the manoeuvre of God making room for himself as God, that is, as the attempt at self-creation. Following closely Burma's original misreading, Schelling envisages Tim Tsung as a contraction to the point, pulling in of the primordial abyss, the Ungrund, which creates the initial ground of all existence, the dunkle Grund as science, the dark stuff of the irrational real, made of the fury fused, the congealed wrath of God, frustrated with his own indefiniteness and non-existence. But Burma himself seems to be torn between the image of God's primordial bliss, his own autotelic self-enjoyment in the state of blessed ignorance, and the image of God's anger growing with the unanswered question, who am I? This duplicity finds its equivalent in the Kabbalistic speculation which oscillates between the eternal joy of the infinite, Ein Sof, and the intrinsic sense of incompleteness which requires a moment of self-reflection. If God is to be God, he must know himself. He must be able to see himself as God. The former position which makes the emergence of the world into inscrutable enigma depending on the caprice of the self-sufficient deity, is irredeemably theosophical and as such prone to dubious moralizing. Whose fault is this? Who done it and why? And whose sin is originally responsible for all that mess? The latter position, however, is more promising philosophically because it renders creation necessary as at least a byproduct of the self-cognizing efforts of God, Burma and Schelling, and at most as the proper realization of the divine process of gaining self-knowledge, Luria and Hegel. The second position thus bifurcates into two separate philosophies of creation, and the choice between the two lies in the interpretation of Tsim Tsum as the answer given by God to the question which constitutes his first nameless name of the infinite indefinite. Elohim as Elech Mi, or Mi Elech, that is, who is God. 
The common feature of the post-Kabbalistic and post-Birmian metaphysics is the motif of doubled creation. Schelling calls it the doctrine of two beginnings, in which, I quote, nature is the Old Testament, mankind the New Testament. The first being the product of God's wrath, the second greater and better deed, the product of God's love. Already Zohar perceives the infinite and Sof as only the first stage in the almost organic transformation of the Godhead from the larva of misty self-unknowing to the imago of the fulfilled coexistence of all in one, where the differentiated all does not lose its separate status. The final reconstructed face of God will thus resemble a constellation of distinct lights, a gestalt of non-repressive and non-totalitarian unity, precisely as in Walter Benjamin, who also, just like the Kabbalists, pays attention to the fact that in Hebrew the word panim, face, has only a plural form. The Ensof, without end, but also without definition, is a mystery to itself and can begin solved only through the act of self-determination, which according to the old saying made popular by Spinoza, Mills, means simultaneously negation. Always a violent setting of the limits, which negate the first essence of the deity as the infinite. In Kabbalah, this violence of first determining negation is the force of the sephira of judgment, Din, then balanced by Hesed, the sephira of mercy. Yet, the first act of self-limitation in which the infinite negates itself as such throws the structure out of balance, thus creating the first cosmic trauma. The excessive severity of God's self-negation imbues the following stages of his subsequent self-expressions, the world included, with the harsh, angry, irascible spirit of separation, finitude and mortality, all belonging to the domain of judgment, Din. But this domination of judgment is not final. It will be reversed thanks to the powers of mercy, which grow under the Etz Haim, the tree of life. The ultimate panim of the Godhead, therefore, will once again restore its lost infinity. Yet not by reverting to the primordial, undifferentiated pleroma abyss, but by reconstructing it in the all-encompassing constellation of all things finite. Luria's invention of Tsim as we have seen already, consists in the path-breaking redefinition of the first act of divine self-determination as self-withdrawal, which makes room for something else than God. The negation of indefiniteness and infinity is and must be coterminous with the emergence of something capable of posing the limit. Nothingness as a separate ontological category, i.e. not conceived as God's self-emanation, but as that very not which does not belong to the defined infinite substance and as such can determine it from without. In Luria's account, God retracts to his outer limit 
thus emptying the space within which once within which was was once full of himself. As Friedrich Ettinger puts it in his Luria-inspired Christian version of Kabbalah, widely read by Hegel, God is in himself without space, but in the revelation of his hiddenness, he is himself, himself the space of all things. For the world, therefore, which will soon emerge in the emptied space, God can only reveal himself as hidden, no longer there, manifest only through indirect traces. These traces, however, can be of a twofold nature. First, there are the arch-old remnants of his primary substance, which he did not manage to evacuate completely from the empty space, and which the Kabbalistic tradition calls the dross of the first kings, or the unknowing lights. They are the scattered leftovers of the power of Dean judgment, the harsh dark lights which pervade the nothingness as the unintended side effect of the violent self-negation of God, the eternalized remnants of his original violence of self-aggression, now overshadowing the emptied space with dark marking shades. In Luria's variant of the doubled creation, this is the first creation, a wrong byproduct, unwanted, unconscious, and erratic, indeed the source of all evil. It will have to be counteracted by the merciful presence of Shekhinah, which carries in herself all sparks, the good knowing lights, imprisoned within the kelipot, the shards, which scattered through the whole cosmos after the breaking of the vessels. And just like in the earlier Zoharic version, the Tikkun, the redemptive restoration of the Holy Panim, is never a simple undoing of the Tzimtzum, God's violent self-contraction. It is rather the messianic triumph of being itself, which in the course of the long holy history manages to complete the second creation and bring it to what it was supposed to be, namely God's own Tselem, his image and likeness, the very key and answer to his pursuit of self-knowledge. The Kabbalistic message, especially in its Lurianic version, is clear. There are two ways to answer the question of God's mysterious identity, self-determination and self-expression. And though the latter cannot happen without the former, only the latter is proper, for it leads to the creation of the world as God's Salem, image and likeness. God who wants to see God cannot see him in his contracted inwardness. He can only see himself in what he expresses projects outward, that is, in the world which holds the key to his secret name. This is precisely why the whole of creation is the ongoing process of articulating the name divine, which is not to be found somewhere hidden and intact, but still in the making, composing itself literally as we speak. The vital, living, self-expressive and historical revelation, which Sholem sums up in one word, the active gerundivum of das Erscheinende in the process of revealing itself.
Now, the next great innovation, first of Böhme and then of Schelling, is to render the motif of the doubled creation fully explicit. Yet the price they both pay for this maneuver is the severe misreading of the Luranic Tsimtsum, which can also be held responsible for a theosophical regression of their teaching. For Bema and for Schelling, to repeat it again, Tsimtsum means self-contraction of God to the point-like dark ground of existence an essentially egotistic and egoistic act of self-creation which constitutes the wrong answer to the question of Mielech, who is God, and as such remains a root of all evil. It is only in the second creation, flowing this time outward uh, as an expression of God's essence love, that the dark, cold ground of the real can be pervaded by the warm breath of Ruach, the divine spirit logos and melt into one all-encompassing stream of the infinite life. While the first deed leaves God in the state of sickness, the second is healing, heil, salvation. While the first contaminates the whole being with the heart principle of the isolated real, which in Burma's imagination spreads like fire, the second is sweetness and light itself, but since it is literally autrement kept, otherwise than being, as Levinas would have it, it needs the ground of existence. It can only come second and work through the ontologism of nature, that is the first creation or the Old Testament, which behaves only according to the harsh rules of being, knowing no mercy, no grace and no love. The difference between Burma, Schelling and Luria lies therefore in the nature of the sacred beginning, Bereshit. While in Luria's system, in the beginning God creates nothing, in their system, in the beginning, God creates being. Being as such, the heart, sore principle of the naked real, the death of bare existence, or quoditas in Don Scotus' vocabulary which later on will find its most uncompromised critic in Levinas and his conception of ontologism, the way of being dictated only by the merciless laws of being as such. This is an enormous difference, followed by the most fundamental implications, one of which is the position which denies nature which carries in itself the principle of the real, a proper redemption. Here nature cannot be saved. The real, written with capital R, turned into a separate principle, acquires a somewhat Manichaean flavor of absolute evil, though structurally speaking, it is not an evil per se, because it remains forever beyond the apocatastatic grasp of the redemptive transformation. Despite its double movement of contraction and expansion, this image is in fact static. God is eternally trapped in the aporia between his sovereign power, which asserts itself in the Old Testamental principle of being, and his mercy, which asserts itself in the New Testamental principle of love. The world which is caught in this aporetic game, can only be helped 
but it cannot be thoroughly, internally, completely healed. It can only be offered a palliative therapy, but it can never be properly redeemed. This is obviously the reason why Slavoj Žižek, being primordially Lacanian, will always feel closer to Schelling than to Haeckel, who, also for that reason, dismissed the Kantian notion of the real, Denk an sich, as a philosophical scandal. It is a scandal, not because the thing in itself humbles our cognitive ambitions, but most of all because it defies the apocatastatic idea of redemption, which involves a deep metaphysical transformation of the real, as Ernst Bloch calls it, that is, a wholesale grand scheme of salvation of all things, which first emerged with origin, then reappeared quite suddenly in Erogena, but found the most complete treatment as Tikkun in the doctrine of Isaac Luria. When God in the beginning creates nothing, which leaves himself and then the creator's being in the state of weakness and depletion, the deep privatio ascendi, this weakness can eventually be overcome. The Hegelian inertia of nature can be fought against because it is only an inertia, a lack of vitality and strength. But when God in the beginning creates being, heart, naked, real itself, the situation is frankly hopeless. There is a war in God himself, a true flammenwahnsinn, a fiery madness, where beingness becomes a separate force, more than that, an essentially invincible manifestation of God's sovereign power. While in Luria, Tsum weakens God and depletes his vital potentialities, in Bema and Schelling, the contraction only asserts God in his omnipotent might. And the last part, Hegel's Lurianism. But why did Bemer misread the Lurianic Tsimtsum so gravely? Why did he go against the nascent modern trend towards the university of being, which was confirmed in more or less the same time by Spinoza, who, by the way, studied heavily the Lurianic Dutch Kabbalist Abraham Herrera? Why he, did he choose to deny kenosis to God the Creator and strengthen God's sovereign power, manifesting itself in the inscrutable real? The obvious answer is that Bemer, who acquainted himself with the Lurianic doctrine via the Rosicrucian Kabbalah in his Bohemian version, understood it automatically according to the logic of Protestant mysticism orbiting around the tremendum et fascinans of Deus Absconditus, the hidden God. It is precisely this hiddenness which is so different in the Jewish Kabbalistic and the Christian Protestant version. One, Kabbalistic, still full of indefinite promise, based on the essentially canonic act of creation, and the other, forming the eternal hard ground of existence firmly opposed to the redemptive activity of the Son, the only divine persona capable of kenosis. But Hegel is different. He does not share in this so common to, so common to the Lutherans quasi-Marcionite predicament, which bestows the hidden powerful 
God, Father, the Creator, with such mistrust and puts all his faith in the revealed, fully manifest figure of Christ, the Redeemer. Hegel's solution to the Christian closure of the messianic game is indeed very ingenious. He opens it again by forcing the gap between what he calls the absolute content of the Christian revelation and its philosophical meaning, which is still in the process of revealing itself through the works of the Spirit. This is Hegel's Judaizing moment, aching to Joachim da Fiori, who was also accused by the Church of turning Christianity Jewish again. Though Christian religion may indeed be fully, where often but, revealed and made zonenklar, clear as a sun to everybody who has eyes to see and ears to hear the message incarnated in the living body of Christ, the very meaning of this message still eludes us. The absolute content of Christianity is also a monstrous enigma which lends itself to the restless task of its deciphering. History, therefore, has two ends. One is given with the embodiment of the absolute truth. The second, still coming, will happen once this truth is universally understood. In this way, Hegel manages to mediate between Christian already fulfilled and Jewish not yet fulfilled messianism. The result of this mediation is the unique vision of history as a dynamic working through an interpretation of the absolute content which is already present in the world but not yet fully operative. History, therefore, is a time of work humanity must put into making the Christian antinomian message of love, friendship, brotherhood and freedom truly workable in the material conditions of the world, which, in its very nature and as nature, is not naturally prone to accept it. Thus, if history of creation is being drawn into the holy process of divine self-reflection and self-transformation, it is because only humanity can tear itself away antithetically from the thesis of natural being and press towards the highest synthesis in which God will be able to see himself in all. This emphatic confirmation of being, as Hegel calls it himself, which bestows history with, with utmost theological importance, makes Hegel, logically speaking, much closer to Luria and his peculiar vision of pro-historical pro messianism than he ever was to Schelling or Burma, even despite his often expressed admiration for the latter. It would not be possible without the Lurianic theme too, understood as the depletion of God's infinite power, almost to the point of its disappearance, even death. Hegel's ingenious reading of the Christian dogma of incarnation is distinctly Lurianic because it puts mankind under the messianic obligation to resurrect God in the process of history, precisely the way it was formulated by Hans Jonas. In his absolutely explicit reference to Luria, it is not God who can help us, but we who must help God. It is not true, therefore, as Zizek claims, borrowing heavy, heavily from Bloch, but also distorting him in the crucial moment, 
that Hegelian Christianity is simply atheistic. Just like Lurianic Messianism, it is indeed inner-worldly, but it adds to being a special flavor of an emphatic surplus confirmation, which can result only from the dramatic reversal of roles, where, after the divine reduction, the world as the divine Tselem becomes God himself in the process of self-making. Thus, if nominalism of Dunskatus and William Ockham, with its thesis on the university of being paves the way for modernity, Luria and then Hegel go even further. They not only see the existence of God and the existence of the world as equal, but they strongly confirm the latter as the only ontological medium in which God, weakened and depleted, can resurrect again. The world, for so long overshadowed by God's more powerful being, can finally assert its full metaphysical autonomy, cut the umbilical cord and get properly born. And if modernity deserves its true esoteric name, Nova Era, which was given to it by Joachim da Fiori and then translated as Neuzeit by Christian Benz, it is precisely due to this absolute novelty which revolutionized modern metaphysics. Now, it is not the world which needs God to sustain its fragile mode of being, but God who needs the world to get him back into existence. Thank you. I trust that you found that construction of the history of Western thought highlighting this Jewish contribution that has been covered over interesting. Some may call me a sentimentalist for this, but I hope in our attempts to understand the world and the violence that it conditions, we won't forget their names. And as you attempt to make your way through the world, don't forget that your name is your name.